from Portland, Oregon. This is the Jewish Review Podcast. I'm Rockney Roll. Coming up this episode, the signing of the Abraham Accords brought hope for a peaceful Middle East. And despite the turmoil that has gripped the region since October 7th, Sharaka, a group whose name means partnership in Arabic, is spreading the message that that hope lives on. I spoke with a group of Sharaka-affiliated activists as they visited Portland on a recent speaking tour. First, Dan Pfefferman, Ahmed Kuzai, and Naveen Elias discussed the political realities in the region, including who doesn't benefit from a broad peace between Israel and its neighbors. Then, Youssef El-Azhari and Fatima El-Harbi discussed their experiences on social media and the influence it can have on public perception in this part of the world. It was an honor to talk with leaders like them, and I hope you'll be as inspired as I am by their vision for the future. Stay with us. The Jewish Review Podcast is brought to you by the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland, presenting Voices from Israel. Continuing through February, this webinar series brings a diverse group of perspectives on the situation in Israel to your screen each Wednesday morning. Learn more at jewishportland.org slash israelwebinars. Now, here's Dan Pfefferman, Ahmed Kuzai, and Naveen Elias. Well, this is the biggest group I've had for this podcast, so I'll introduce everybody in order. Dan Pfefferman, welcome to the Jewish Review Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be here. Ahmed Kuzai, welcome to the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank you. And Naveen Elias, am I getting that right? Yeah. Excellent. Welcome to the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank you. So... Can you each, in whatever order you prefer, tell me a little about your background and how you got involved with Sharaka? Sure. So as a political consultant, as a professor of international relations and a political history researcher about the Gulf, it has been mesmerizing for me to have Israel off hands. It was off limits to us. We have the big elephant in the room, which is Israel. It's in the heart of the Middle East, yet it's off limits. Every source we have was written single-handedly by Westerners. We couldn't understand, I couldn't understand personally, coming from Bahrain, which is in the Gulf, couldn't understand what the Jews are all about, what the state of Israel is all about from an academic approach, I'm talking. So the Abraham Accords gave me that opportunity, and then Sharaka gave me a bigger opportunity to be able to visit, to see, to understand, and to communicate with fellow academics and regular people as well, just to have a proper picture of what I want to convey to the people. I was involved in the policy community, and uh, when the Abraham Accords were uh, being signed, were being announced, a group of people in Israel, where I'm from, and uh, people in the Gulf, specifically the United Arab Emirates and also Bahrain, started putting together a WhatsApp group just to get to know each other. It's crazy to think that uh, we live in the same region. We share generally a very similar culture, similar foods, uh, but because of the political realities, we could never get to know each other. We could never meet. And so I started connecting alongside a group of Israelis with fellows from, from the UAE and Bahrain online and started making friends and potential business contacts and academic contacts uh, as well. And I took the opportunity, using my American passport, to get to Dubai before all of my Israeli friends. This was during COVID. I had to fly through Ethiopia. I almost got stuck there in a uh, little mini civil war that broke out while I was uh, transiting through Ethiopia. Anyway, I made it to Dubai, and I did not know what to expect. I had heard about the glitz and the glamour, the, the tall buildings, you know, the uh, people told me it's like the Vegas of uh, the Middle East. 
and, and from a on maybe you could say an architectural standpoint, that's true. It's it's these unbelievable you know glass uh, skyscrapers in the middle of the desert, and, and a lot of fancy cars and, and you know swanky restaurants. But what blew me away were these nonstop conversations I was having with people from literally all over the Arab world that I could never really meet before and having unbelievably open conversations about society and religion and politics and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and radical Islam and you know how do we merge modernity and tradition and all of these things that I just never imagined I would be having with Arabs and, and Muslims in an Arab country while openly traveling as a Jewish Israeli. Blew my mind away. Uh, fast forward a few months, I was uh, building more connections, traveling, trying to figure out how I could get involved in promoting the Abraham Accords. And Sharaka was a new initiative at the time. Sharaka is a, it's an Arabic word that means partnership. And it was a nonprofit initiative formed by young Israelis, Emiratis, and Bahrainis to get to know one another, to help make the peace tangible and real on the popular level. I was actually, funny enough, it was my Emirati friends who introduced me to the Israelis who founded it who I hadn't met before. And uh, I found myself involved in this world of, of what is essentially citizen diplomacy, trying to bring together uh, Jews and Arabs, Israelis and, and, and Arabs from all over the region. We've since expanded beyond the Arab world to other Muslim countries. And it's also brought me into a whole new life of Israeli-Arab society and a lot of people who are very much interested in, in real coexistence inside Israel that I was just never exposed to before. And so I found myself, uh, you know, directing this, we call ourselves a traveling circus of, uh, you know, the, the joke about uh, uh, three Arabs, a Jew, and a Christian walk into uh, a Jewish federation, right? <laughs> I mean, that's really what we are. And we travel all over the world now promoting the Abraham Accords, promoting this new peace. And ironically, that there is a good story taking place in the Middle East, and it's not being told. And so we're trying to tell it. Well, that's what I'm here for, absolutely. Naveen, kind of tell me a little about your background and how you got involved with Sharaka. Uh, okay, so I have an interesting uh, story that uh, I can share a little bit about it uh, with you. Uh, I just grew up and uh, I say that I am Palestinian Arab that live in Israel. It's not easy to say that in uh, with the Middle East that I am in Israel. It, uh, it's very difficult to understand that we have Arabs in Israel. When I just uh, make a research who I am, I just uh, know that I am from the indigenous people from this land, from Israel. Uh, I become more uh, involved. Uh, I also uh, get when I was in uh, uh, when I was 39 years old for volunteer in the IDF, become more active with uh, a project that we lead. Uh, for pre-military program, youth movement, I am going and chair with uh, all uh, the Middle East, the Christians also, uh, that Israel is a good country, and uh, to hear more about us. So, you, Dan, you touched on this briefly, but just to make sure it's we've got it very concrete, what is Sharaka? So, right, Sharaka means uh, partnership, cooperation, mm -hmm. and it's a... Uh, non-political, non-profit, and non-governmental initiative meant to take the Abraham Accords to what we call the people-to-people -people level. So the idea is, is that the Accords were signed by governments. And we, the, the founders of Sharaka, which was prior to our involvement in it, understood that, you know, we go back to the peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan, 
which were essential in stopping wars, but there is zero people-to-people engagement, very little knowledge, understanding, and, and sympathy or, or warmth for Israel. And on the Israeli side, Israelis do travel to these countries, but usually it's undercover. You know, they often have to, uh, traveling around Egypt as tourists, uh, they pretend to be Canadian. You know, we are Canadian, we are not Israeli. <laughs> because it's not safe uh, to be an Israeli. And, and so we didn't want to let the same cold peace emerge between our countries. Now, from the beginning, the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco made it clear that they wanted to be a warm peace. And at least to the UAE, you had um, hundreds of thousands of Israeli tourists there within, you know, the second they could. Uh, Almost everybody I know hopped on a plane and went to Dubai, and now uh, many tens of thousands have been to Morocco. And and, and for us, you know, it's, it's a taste of the unknown. We never got to experience these countries. And then to go there and feel the the welcome, the warmth that we never thought we would feel. So we wanted to to help connect people and to make it popular in the uh, in the press and in social media, so that more people could see the good news, could could see a, a humanizing effort of one another. We would hold influencer delegations that went back and forth between the countries, and then people would share you know, fun news on social media. Hey, I'm meeting Emiratis, I'm meeting Israelis, I'm meeting etc. And then we would hold holiday celebrations in Dubai and later on in Bahrain and Morocco, celebrating either Jewish holidays or if there's a, a Muslim and a Jewish holiday happening around the same time, we would hold a joint celebration and try to create a lot of buzz around it. So that, that was the initial idea. And today we have a lot of frameworks for educational programs, deeper educational programs, and deeper civil society engagement between the countries. Ahmed, what were some of the, the differences you saw in Bahrain before and after the Abraham Accords came into effect? When you say differences, are we talking about political or talking about like the broader perspective or just cultural? All of the above. All right. Well, it's hard to tell since, as I said earlier, we have been isolated from Israel. So everything we knew before was a relative to reality. Now, in that case, there's no way to answer this question the way it was asked, but I'll answer from the newfound land to us and what we've seen uh, compared to what we perceived. Like, to start with, the uh, trilingual signs on the streets. Uh, we were told that Israel is an apartheid state. At the same time, no apartheid state will recognize the language of those people they are op- oppressing. Arabic is the second language. We have two million Uh, Arabs living in Israel, which makes it 20%. Ethnic cleansing, uh, apartheid, those are words that were amplified, words that were promoted to be the face of Israel in the Middle East, which are not. Uh, I'm not saying that Israel is the perfect state. They are human beings after all. There are mistakes here and there. But altogether, there is a well of cooperation. There is a well of understanding what's going within and around them in the Middle East. And Naveen, from, you, you are kind of have this perspective from a lot of different communities. You're an Israeli citizen. You, you come from an Arab family. You're a Christian. How has the Abraham Accords and the, the change in diplomatic relations across the, the broader region made impacts in the communities that you're a part of? So it was a dream that we never like believed that it will happen. And we just believe now and uh, uh, like pray that have uh, uh, this Abraham record with another countries uh, to become with peace in Israel. I just uh, like 
want and pray a lot for uh, having peace uh, with Lebanon because I have another family on the other side. So I think that it will be model for all the other countries that uh, until now not with peace with Israel uh, to, be, to become soon uh, with peace. It's better for all the countries, not only for us like Israeli citizens, also for Lebanon, also for Syria and all the Middle East. So as you pointed out, I think it's probably fair to say that both Israelis and Palestinians have a vested interest in peace in the region. Who are the people that don't? Who are the people that have a vested interest either in the status quo or in a wider conflict in the region? So here I'd like to give my take as an observer of Middle East affairs, but then I want to hear what my colleagues here have to say. So you have... First of all, the, the radical Islamist groups in the region, uh, whether it's the Iran-backed ones, so obviously the Islamic Republic of Iran, and of course I'm talking about the regime and not the people, and then of course their proxies around the region. Hezbollah, of course, is their most potent and deadly proxy, which is on Israel's northern border. Various uh, different groups they have in Syria, and maybe even the Syrian regime. Of course, Hamas, which is a Sunni uh, Muslim Brotherhood Islamist group. You have uh, the Houthis, who are you know decided to start firing rockets at Israel. They have nothing to do with this conflict. You have various groups in the region who have, uh, and of course we're not even talking about ISIS, right, which is not involved in this conflict specifically, but they're around the region. They have a, a view of the region and how it should be that the words stability and peace have nothing to do with it. They have this long-term vision of an Islamic caliphate that is, is dependent upon destroying the existing nation-state system so it's not just destroying Israel, which for Hamas and a lot of these other groups are you know, hell-bent on destroying Israel, but it's also destroying the moderate Arab Muslim states around the, the country, and as well as other minorities. We saw what ISIS did to Yazidis in Iraq and Syria. Uh, we see uh, what these groups are doing to Kurds, who are Muslim. Uh, we see what they do to moderate uh, Muslim governments around the around the region and, and peoples, and of course Israel as the uh, you know the leading uh, quote unquote infidel uh, group in the region. So they do not want peace, or their vision of peace is predicated upon destroying everything in their way in order to get to peace. It's predicated on this misguided idea that they have to expel all the foreign non-Islamic influences in the region to reach the state of purity in order to achieve their their vision. They thrive on war because war breeds resentment and poverty and hatred, and they control that cycle. I think there are also a lot of other groups in the region, maybe governments, who don't necessarily want war. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't want war. But I also, you know, I'm always confused why a lot of the governments in the region don't take active steps to de-radicalize and to promote peace. So on the one hand, they're certainly not active in promoting war. And here I'm curious for your opinion, Ahmed. They're active behind the scenes in stopping extremism and terror groups, but they're not actively promoting a peace agenda as are today the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi, Morocco, these countries who are actively, I think, working to promote a moderate anti-radical agenda in the region. So that's kind of how I would you know, approach that. I'd be curious for my friends' takes on it. Sure, we'll have to understand that in order for you to topple down any ideology that's really infiltrated in the, um, in the community for hundreds of years. It's not just um, two days or three days. It has been infiltrated in the especially uh, religious groups that became fundamental for them. It 
has nothing to do with religion to start with. But to them, it is. It became religious, for example, to establish an Islamic caliphate. It's, uh, to others, it's important for them to bring down any person who disagrees with them. I'll talk about Syria, for example. Syria today is a no state. Why? They were consumed more about external affairs rather than local affairs. Their people were in poverty, not today. It has been there forever. But because of their agendas broadly or uh, their agendas uh, foreignly, it has toppled down internally. I'll give an example on how this is almost impossible today. Uh, during one of the wars that Syria was on the front lines fighting Israel, Iraq wanted to help. So they sent their troops inside Syria. Now, the Syrians were scared from the Iraqis more than they were, they were scared from the Israelis. That's one of the reasons why they lost the war. And that tells you a lot about how this region functions. I'll add to that, most of the countries, I'll talk about Egypt, I'll talk about Syria, I'll talk about Iraq, they were ruled by monarchs. And they were more stabilized, more in touch with their inner communities. Almost all uh, denominations were living somehow peacefully. Yes, they had issues. There was some poverty. It was a world war. Nobody was uh, saved from it. But when they were toppled down, when they were taken out, and a new progressive governments were formed, Abdul Nasser, Karim Qasim, and then uh, Hafez al-Assad in result, they started talking about something different, bringing down Israel, the broader Arab nation, and nationalism, but poverty was still there. They didn't solve it. I'll refer uh, a great article that came out two years ago on the uh, Foreign Affairs magazine that compared the Arab Spring countries 10 years later. The only countries that were not affected or least affected by the uh, Arab Spring were the monarchs. Democratic states went very bad. Monarchs, they solved their issues like... Um, Jordan and Morocco, for example, within 24 hours, they solved it, compared to Syria and Tunisia, for example, or Egypt. Lots of misplacement, lots of poverty, lots of uh, death tolls. So stability has a formula to be achieved. People have to agree on one goal, which we don't have. And that's exactly why we have a Palestinian issue today. Well, Naveen, speaking of Palestinian issues, uh, what would your perspective be on who, who in the region is invested in there not being peace in Israel and with Israel? So I am agree with, uh, uh, with Dan. All the people that don't want peace with Israel is the Islamic terrorist people. For me, it's one organization, one group, with a lot of names, under a lot of names. Fatah, Hamas, Jihad, Hezbollah, Iran, Houthin, Radwan, all these people, for me, is the same. All these people will not agree with peace, and they didn't want also Israel to, like, to stay Israel, to stay the state of Israel. So that's it. Now, Ahmed, I wanted to, to go back to something you had said when we were talking about the, the differences that democracies had in dealing with the Arab Spring and in their approaches to relations in the region. I, I think we do have to point out that 
calling Bashar al-Assad Syria a democracy is a, a little tongue-in-cheek, yes. for lack of a better word. Hmm. Is there a fear amongst, that you've perceived amongst other countries, particularly other quote-unquote, I'm using, nobody can see me because this is audio, but I'm using <laughs> air quotes, democracies, uh, about relating with Israel because Israel actually is a functioning open democracy? When I said a democracy, that's what they call themselves. Of course, having 99% of the vote, actually 99.9% .9 of the votes doesn't make any democracy. It would be like me calling myself a football player. I'll join you in that with my big billy. <laughs> um, I agree, but since they call themselves that, I had to, since we had to compare the so-called democracies and the evil monarchies in the Middle East. But they have proved themselves to be wrong. We have proved ourselves to be right. Now, in relations to that, those so-called democracies came with uh, ideologies. For example, Arab nationalism, which was shared between somehow Egypt, uh, Syria, and Iraq. They used a slogan in Syria that says, Tahrir qabla tamir which meant uh, free Palestine, then focus on infrastructure back home so that nobody locally could come and say we need better education, we have proper uh, GDP that could be used properly in infrastructure, education, uh, health care, and so forth. Everybody was shot, everybody was militarized, everybody was used to enforce their agenda locally and internationally. Example, international students who came to study in Syria or in Iraq were forced to join the Ba'athist party and were greeted by the president in Iraq, for example, over lunch to just give them a boost. Who would take that ideology back home, which we were infiltrated in the Gulf, for example, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s by a big uprising in Oman. They wanted to free Oman from the Omanis. <laughs> So it has always been misplaced and uh, chaotic. Fair enough. Dan Pfefferman, Ahed Kuzai, Naveen Elias, thank you for joining us on the Jewish Review Podcast. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We interrupt this podcast to let you know that nominations for the 2024 Lori Rogaway Outstanding Jewish Professional Award are now open. The Rogaway Award honors a mid-career Jewish professional in Portland for their commitment to leadership in Jewish communal work. Learn more and find out how to nominate a deserving Jewish professional in today's Jewish Review newspaper at jewishportland.org jewishreview. Now, here's Yusef El-Azhari and Fatima Al-Harari. Yusef El-Azhari, welcome to the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank you so much and very honored to be here with you. And Fatima El-Harabi. Yes. Thank you for joining us on the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So tell me how each of you got involved with Sharaka. Of course. I always love to say I got into Sharaka by coincidence. It was uh, the Abraham Accord uh, was just signed. And a few months uh, after that, the Sharaka was established and they invited the first youth leaders delegation from the Gulf UAE and Bahrain to Israel. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the first uh, to visit Israel. Um, I went there uh, out of curiosity. I left Israel with a special agenda, I, I love to call it, advocating for peace and building bridges with Sharaka. Mm -hmm. And where are you from, Fatima? I'm from Bahrain, yes. 
So for me, uh, I went uh, with uh, a beautiful group of young leaders, Moroccan young leaders, to Israel to discover the country, to discover the culture, to discover the, the young leadership they have there. And I, were, I was really surprised uh, because, uh, you know, in Morocco, we, we, are, we were a little bit victim of the propaganda, even if we are like the safest country for the Jews, thanks to our kingdom and the king and its leadership. So when I went back, I, 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 was, I was really that I need to share this with my own community. They need to know that Israelis are really good people, uh, in the contrary with what we see in the media. And back then I had this startup, uh, marketing startup, giving investors advice, uh, ads and uh, communication. And I remember um, that my, my co-founder, he quit just because he, he saw that there is, I have some links with the Israelis. It was like, I don't want to do that with you anymore. So I was even more enraged and and, uh, and motivated. I was like, no, this is definitely needs to change. And uh, I think two months after that, I joined Sharaika for that. Really changed my life for, for, for good. So for both of you, what are some of the impacts on the peace process and relations in the region that you've seen from social media, particularly social media that's coming from what we might refer to as Western countries, and I'm using air quotes again, uh, the United States, Western Europe? So uh, I would say that not a very good influence, to be honest, because I feel that uh, institutionally speaking, Morocco has strong ties with Israel. I'm talking here about many sectors such as intelligence, uh, such as uh, uh, agriculture, uh, uh, sustainable energies, and also tourism. So I don't think this will be affected. But what really is very frustrating is that how the mass media right now tries to influence the public opinion instead of giving solutions, trying to, to enhance the hatred between Arabs and Israelis. And this is, for me, the most dangerous thing we have. I think that leadership in Morocco, for instance, is trying so hard to give a beautiful two-state solution, bringing peace between the two communities. And he's been doing this since forever. But the, the, the West media especially, they are really trying to, to, to divide people, make them very polarized, and that's the most dangerous thing in, in the region, actually. Yeah, of course. I think um, we're living in the, in the world of social media, and it's both beneficial, but at the same time, it's dangerous that we're seeing um, it's influencing the opinion in a bad way, that we see people attacking each other just because of their identity, either Jews or Muslims. And I think this is the dangerous part about social media and the Western media that has special agenda to push through their media outlets or social media. But I think it, here comes the part of people like us and voices like us that we need to, to share a different narrative and to share the reality. We don't want people che choosing sides. We want people to know the, both narratives and to be pro-peace. So, Youssef, you mentioned political polarization, and that's been a significant influence uh, on the political processes in Western countries and also just around the world. What do you think, what do both of you think we can do to counteract the effects of political polarization, pushing against a movement towards peace, pushing towards the continuation of the status quo, or a, a wider conflict in the region as we've started to see. You know, the thing right now is that the danger of, of polarization is that it doesn't give any uh, third alternative of what we can, what of what can brings us together, like, and the problem is that we can 
switch from an antagonist to a protagonist very easily. Uh, I, I always give this funny example that back in the days, Batman was the protagonist right now. Is it Joker who is the protagonist? <laughs> he has his own movie. Uh, back in the day, also, we had the Karate Kid. Right now, we have Cobra Kai. So things are really changing. You see how the media are very powerful to create from a, from a villain, an underdog in, in no time. So for me, I think that to counter this won't be a very short term. I would say that to counter this needs to have a very long-term strategy. And f in, in, in my opinion, I would put all my money on, on, on cinema, for instance, because it is very, very powerful. You have right, back in the days, a lot of uh, Arab uh, news outlets, they were blocking the Israeli content uh, because we, they were controlling the, the, the cable channels. Right now, we have open platforms on the internet that everyone can produce and can make their videos uh, and, and movies there. And I think this is the most important thing. You know, a lot of people right now may, may have a lot of differences like uh, towards a lot of uh, stars in, in Israel, in America, uh, preaching for peace and all that. But in terms of cinema, I would, uh, like for instance, I don't recall any Arab person who hates Gal Gadot. <laughs> Everyone loves Gal Gadot. And, and this is something very important. Cinema is very powerful. Music is very powerful. Food is very powerful. To bring people together. You know, in Morocco, we have organized one of the biggest uh, Sharaka event in the Arab world. Uh, not, I didn't sell it as let's discuss the conflict. I, I, I sold it as we have the best kosher food in Morocco and we're bringing Firkat Noor to play in that event. It was, by the way, uh, a celebration of the uh, the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad and the, the Sukkot. It was a coincidence uh, last year. And we had a beautiful event about that. Uh, so for me, we really need to to bet on, on cinema and culture. That's for me essential. So at least the Arabs who are misguided, they would understand that the Jews are indigenous to the land, that they are Middle Easterns, they didn't come from Europe. You know, this kind of something that we tend to forget. I think for me, beside what Yusuf mentioned, um, education has a huge role, and and we see this firsthand happening in our countries, the Abraham Accords countries plus Saudi Arabia. Uh, we saw this in Bahrain and UAE and Saudi Arabia that the governments are really changing the curriculum that it has more tolerance, peaceful uh, content. So the next generation grows up to have a different narrative. They have a peaceful thinking and I think that's what we come in also in Sharaka where we have the Holocaust program where we actually invite influential people like journalists, imams, social media influencers and so on to come and educate themselves about the Holocaust because either there is so much denial or people don't talk about it enough in the way in, in, in countering extremism. So those people have a lot of following, uh, hundreds, thousands, millions of people following them um, that they can actually affect the public opinion in, in spreading uh, uh, knowledge and education. So just briefly to touch on October 7th, what were, what were the reactions you saw in, in your community and, and the reactions that you felt personally to the events of, of the terror attacks on October 7th? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, so much, uh, I don't have a number, but so many people uh, were celebrating the acts of the 7th of October. And that broke my heart because at the end, it's human lives. No matter they're Jews, Israelis, Muslims, Arab, Druze, Christians, it's human life. If, it's, if you're a normal human being, you won't celebrate 
a death of a person or a killing or beheading or whatsoever. So I shared my views on social media that I grieve for the Israeli victims and people didn't like it. But I knew immediately what will happen also to Palestinians because Israel, of course, will defend itself and their citizens. And then I also grieved the loss of innocent Palestinian citizens and people told me to choose sides. And that's what we advocate for. We don't choose sides. We advocate for both innocent life from both sides, Israeli and Palestinians. We want human rights for both. We want. We don't want to see killings for Palestinians or Israelis. So people called me double standards, actually, for standing for both people. But uh, we, sta- we stand strong and we advocate for peace and we're pro-peace. Very true. And uh, also, I was also ashamed that there was a lot of people that they celebrated the massacre of October 7th. And for them, is a, is a way of retaliation. And I'm very ashamed of that because this is the, the, the consequences of radicalization of, of the communities, thinking that this is what will, will free them and what will bring peace to them, which is totally false. Uh, I feel that uh, the, the the life of Jews is, is something is very sacred as the life of the Muslims as well and we need to go back to our human part in a sense that as just about said all lives not only matters but all lives are sacred killing will never solve a, a problem and, and this is what story always told us there's a saying I'm fond of that, that goes, when you're trying to move mountains, it takes lifetimes. I think a holistic, just, and lasting peace in the Middle East is obviously the end goal, but it is a bit of a mountain to move. So what kind of tangible progress do you hope to see towards that goal in your lifetimes? Yeah, that's a hard question. I think um, we all hope and dream of having a peaceful Middle East. We all do different roles for us in Sharaka, the governments, but we all have the same goal that we want people to live peacefully. And whenever people think about the Middle East, they think about a peaceful uh, place, region, people getting along. For me, I would say, I will phrase it that way. I would love the Arab countries will go to Israel as tourists as they yeah. go to Europe and America. That would be perfect. That that would be for me the goal, just to s- because for me the best PR strategy for any country is tourism, especially in Israel. Once you go there, you go there, you debunk all you debunk all the lies and misconception. So this is for me the the, the most wonderful goal I would ever dream of right now. Most very tangible, that you have a lot of tourism, not not the other way around, not, not, not Israelis only coming to Arab countries, but mostly Arab people from Arab countries going to Israel. That would be really the ideal scenario for me. Yusuf El Azhari, Fatima Al Harabi, thank you for joining us on the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank, thank you so much thank for hosting us. It's very honored to That's all for this episode of the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank you so much to the team at Sharaka for coming on the show and for working to build a better Middle East and a better world for everyone. You can read more about the Sharaka Delegation's stop in Portland in today's Jewish Review at jewishportland.org slash jewishreview. And learn more about Sharaka at sharakango, that's S-H-A-R-A-K-A-N-G-O dot com. I'll leave links in the show notes. 
If you like this episode, please leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice to help others find our show, and click subscribe to get our latest episode every two weeks. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please reach out by email to editor at jewishportland.org. The Jewish Review Podcast is a production of the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland. Special thanks to Daniel Berger. Our theme music is by Isaac Joel. I'm Rockney Roll. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, all the best.